So that's Mark chapter 11, and we'll be going all the way to 15. And the next week we'll be doing 16 for Easter and the resurrection. So it's going to work out well. So here we are, Palm Sunday, and we're at Palm Sunday in Mark. So Mark chapter 11, I am going to share a scene from one of Christianity's beloved novel series called The Lord of the Rings. And then I'm going to take us through this final week of Jesus's life. And um, I think it'll be very clear. Well, Frodo is standing... He's sitting on a hillside, and he's terrified, and he's confused, and he's alone. The fellowship has been formed to carry the ring of power, the ring that can control the whole world, made by the enemy himself, to take this ring all the way to its origins, all the way east in Mordor, and destroy it there. Destroy it where it was created. Take it to the enemy himself and sock it to him, if you will. <laughs> and the council, the wise council of the powers that be for the good side have decided that Frodo is to be the chosen one to carry this ring, this, this symbol of power and evil, and to carry it to Mordor himself. And now he's sitting on the hilltop alone because he's afraid and, and trying to sort things out. You see, the fellowship below is arguing, they're debating, they're trying to decide what is the best route to take, what's the best option to get rid of this ring. And everybody has their own opinions, everybody has their own ways, right? And Frodo is there because he knows exactly what he needs to do. He just needs to settle this in his heart. So he's sitting there. And Boromir, one of the members of the fellowship, he's this big, burly warrior, right? You think Viking is the way I picture this man. And he's, he's a fighter. He's from one of the fiercest cities of the entire earth. And he is strong. And he's the son of a king. And so, you know, he's got, he's got royal blood in him and the courage of kings and the fierceness of champions of war. And he, he finds Frodo alone on the hillside. And he says, Frodo, what's going on? And Frodo admits that, you know, I... I'm, I know everyone's trying to decide what to do, but I'm frankly afraid. I know what I need to do. I'm just afraid to do it. And Boromir asks, sitting down next to Frodo, Are you sure that you don't suffer needlessly? Are you sure that you aren't just taking upon yourself more than you really need to carry? Would you listen to my counsel, since I'm sure you are in need of some counsel at this point? And Frodo answers Boromir, I don't need your counsel because I already know what your counsel is. And I would heed it, except there's this warning in my heart. And Frodo says, and I'm quoting from the book, says that my heart warns me against delay. It warns me against the way that seems easier. It warns me against refusal of the burden that is laid on me. And it warns me against, I'm looking at big Boromir, says, well, if it must be said, 
The warning in my heart warns me against trust in the strength and truth of man. And Boromir is taken aback. He's offended. He says, you little hobbit, don't you know that it's my people of Minas Tirith, it's my people that have protected you against the evil of the East all of this time. It is our strength, it is our armies, our weapons, our fortresses. We are the reason that your little shire is still intact to begin with. And Frodo says, look, I would trust in your guys' strength, and I don't doubt that you're strong, but it's this ring. It's this ring. You will never stand up to this ring if it gets in the wrong hands. And Boromir realizes it, and he says, the ring. That's right, the ring. I've heard so much about it, but I haven't actually seen it yet. Can I please see the ring, Frodo? And Frodo sees this gleam in Boromir's eyes. It's like greedy, this envious gleam. His face is friendly, but inside there's something that's yearning and greedy for it. And Frodo sees this, and he says... I think it's best that you don't see the ring. And then Boromir goes, fine, whatever. I didn't want it anyways. Tries to play it cool. And then he starts to talk. He stands up and he starts pacing back and forth. And he's like, why don't we just use the ring for ourselves? It's so powerful. If we use it, we can use it against the enemy and we can hurt him and we can be powerful and we can abstain the evil that's coming. And he starts ranting and he starts pacing back and forth saying things about Aragorn could be a great king and all we need is weapons and we need walls and we need war and we need armies and I can become a great king. If only we have the ring, we can stand up and greatness will be ours. (laughs) And then he comes up to Frodo and touches him as if ready to plead. Please let me borrow the ring. And Frodo notices something. It says that he felt in the hand of Boromir a contained wild excitement. He could feel the hand shaking. It's so desperate for the ring that Frodo steps back. He gets away from his hold. And Frodo there says, no. And Boromir says, what? Why are you being so unfriendly toward me? Don't you know that it is your own folly? Now he starts really ranting what he really thinks. It's your own folly, Frodo, that the enemy's going to win. It's your guys' stupid plan, and it makes absolutely no sense. And he says this, your plan is running willfully to death and ruining our cause. And Frodo backs away. And then Boromir says, come, friend, come. Be rid of your burden. Join me. Give me the ring. Lend it to me. We will build an army at my town, Minas Tirith. You can rest there. We can seek counsel. And in the meantime, I will build up a great army. Give me the ring. Be free of your burden. You know this is hard on you. Ease up a little bit. Fredo refuses. He knows the way he needs to take. And if you know the end, Boromir springs upon him and tries to use his brute force to take the ring. Frodo slips it on and disappears. So he was bewildered after that point. But you know, that little phrase, that little sentence that Frodo says is what captured my imagination. And it caused me to see, wow, this this is in great literary form, the battle of Jesus and the way that he's about to take. It's the battle of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
as he's there and he knows what he's to do. He knows what the council, what the Godhead has told him the mission is. And he knows what he's carrying to the cross. But there's fear. There's panic. He's afraid. And he doesn't necessarily want the hard way. And there's a temptation to take the easy way. And so it's that part that Frodo says where he says, my heart is warning me against delay. Just put it off. Let's just take our time. No, this is urgent. And it's warning me. Don't do any more delay. You know what you need to do. Just keep on going. Move forward. Press forward. It's also warning me against the way that seems easier. And now we are so subject to reason, aren't we? We're subject to doing whatever is easier as long as we can justify the means. We're saying, that's great with me. I can totally do that. And here's Boromir and he's tempting him. Hey, just use the ring to empower ourselves. And then we will put the other people down and then we'll be fine. But Frodo knows that that's the easy way. And that the way the council is put upon me is not an easy way. And I need to go through and I need to enter into Mordor alone. I need to confront death face on the place of evil, the very seat of the power of evil. I will go there myself and I will there destroy the ring. There's no, there's no way around it. There's no easy way. Frodo knows I have to face. I have to go straight. The way lies forward and I have to stay on it. And that is the situation we find Jesus in as we come to Mark chapter 11. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and he knows there's no other way. There's no roundabout. There's no, oh, let's just stay in Galilee. Our healing ministry is really blessing people. This is a good thing. And Peter and his family could have totally convinced him that, yeah, we're doing great things for the world. Who has been able to heal people since Elijah? Since Elijah, who's been able to heal people like you? This is amazing. Yeah, you know what? You're right. Let's stay here a little bit longer. Let's just make people feel better. Let's just heal their physical bodies. That's enough, right? No, he knows the way. It lies in Jerusalem. So we have been looking at the way in Mark. And the way we've seen is, first of all, it starts with a decision. The way begins with a decision. And once the decision is made to join the way, you find that it's a way of freedom. As Jesus is going around Galilee and he's freeing people. He's freeing them from the bondage that Satan has over their lives. And Satan has been using two tools. Remember this? He's been using creation. So through demons and diseases, he's holding people in bondage. And Jesus comes and speaks to the disease. He speaks to the demon. He even speaks to storms and creation and says, be still, come out of him. I rebuke you. And people are liberated. They join him on the way of freedom. And then Satan's using the Torah. He's using religion. And he's, the religious leaders are siding with him. Jesus accuses them of siding with him. And they're using the Torah not to bring people closer to God, not to bring them into life and wellness, but he's using the Torah to control the people. And the religious leaders do just that. You can't do that. It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to talk to them. They're the unclean. They're the impure. Don't eat at their table. We want to keep everybody in their little controllable pockets. And so Jesus liberates them from this oppressive control of religion. And so the way begins with the decision. I want to follow Jesus on the way. And we find that it's freedom. And that's how you came to Christ. 
everything was good at first. You were freed from whatever held you. Even if it was something as seemingly small, this is huge, as your own ego, you were free. But then as we journey with Jesus, in Mark 8, 9, and 10, he begins to leave Galilee and go toward Jerusalem. And 8, 9, and 10 occupy that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And that's where we discover that the way begins with a decision, and it's the way of freedom. But then it becomes a direction. That the way is not just a decision we make, it's a direction we take. It's somewhere that you're going. It's a way of life. It's a movement. And he tells his disciples that this is what it looks like. It looks like the cross. Taking it up and bearing it. It looks like receiving children that can't give you any advantage whatsoever. And receiving them not to control them and use them, but to let them grow up into what they should be. And it also looks like getting off your throne. And giving it to the worthless and the least. So you remember that? How he tells the disciples three times going toward Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They don't get it. They're blind. And then he gives them an object lesson. And then he heals blind Bartimaeus right before they get to Jerusalem. And blind Bartimaeus, who's sitting on the side of the way, gets healed and then joins Jesus on the way. And that's, that's the issue, is that we're blind. We don't see the way of God. We're stuck in our limited vision of the way of man, which preaches, survive, use people if necessary. Don't take risk. It's about protecting self. It's taking lives. But the way of God is the total opposite. It's risk everything for people. It's lead to serve them, not to serve yourself. It's not survival. It's taking that risk and laying down your life. And it's about giving life rather than taking life. It's the total opposite. And so he has to teach them that on the way. So it's the, it's the decision of freedom. It's the direction of death. The way becomes a direction of death. And now finally, here we are tonight. The way of life is the title of our text. The way of life. Because that's what we ultimately find if we're willing to follow Jesus on the way of freedom and onto the way of death. We find that on the other side of death is life. And that's what Frodo knew, carrying the ring, is that the only way to save Middle Earth is if I go to Mordor and face what comes. And Jesus knows the only way that I'm going to bring life to the world and be resurrected is if I go to Jerusalem and face what comes. And so he goes. And so the way of life, and all that is to say that life comes through death. There's no other way. The cross stands in the middle and people have tried to get around it, under it, over it, but all have seen their fate. And you see, even in our story tonight, Judas and Peter try to get around it and they cannot. So you must take the cross to get to the resurrection. And that's what the hardness of the way teaches. Now, for two weeks, um, you have seen this lovely picture on the wall that uh, my friend Adam Quinn painted. And um, we kind of worked in collaboration. He's got the skill. I just had a thought. (laughs) And um, we talked about the way and what it looks like, and that's it. 
That's, um, now, I've refrained, I've refrained from talking about it because I believe that art should leave an impression, whatever it says to you. you know? But now I'm going to interpret a little bit just so that if you've been unclear, this is what it's doing. This is the way. There's a pilgrim, a solitary, lonely man walking on this path. And he's going towards darkness and death. And it's barren. There's no life. But everywhere he has been, notice behind him, there is life. There is flourishing fruit. And that, you might remember, was what Isaiah chapter 35 said the way was. That God said, I'm going to make springs and gardens in the desert. And they're going to flow with water. And the lame shall leap like a deer. And the blind shall see. And the deaf shall hear. And then I will bring all of the ransomed. I will free the captives. And they will come with me on the highway to Zion, which is Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. And there's going to be singing and clapping. And that's the way. It begins in the wilderness. And it goes towards Zion. And on the way to Zion... It's bringing life everywhere that it goes, healing deserts and healing people. And that's what we see Jesus is doing literally in the gospel of Mark. He's healing people and curing them and bringing them with him on the way as they go to Zion. Only the singing and rejoicing comes after the cross. And that's the part that we need to get ready for. That's the part that we always find difficult is the cross. So there's the picture and that sort of summarizes all of it. So let's dive into our text and let's move through this quickly. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the cross itself for this reason. We're doing Good Friday on Friday. So we'll spend more time on the cross on Good Friday. Tonight, we're going to look at the events leading up to it. So Mark chapter 11, we have now the final week of Jesus's life the final week. Mark records every single day for us. There will be time signatures you'll see. For example, um, on 11.1, we're on Sunday, right? Palm Sunday. Then on 11.12, notice it says this. On the following day. You see that? So that means Monday. Then you look at 11.20. As they passed by in the morning, that would be Tuesday. Then you'll notice 14 verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover. So now we're at Wednesday. Verse 12. 14, 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread. So there's another time signature, a new day. That's Thursday. And then 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, that's Friday. And then... Um, in verse 42 and on, it talks about the Sabbath is when they buried him. So that would be Saturday. And then 16 verse one talks about when the Sabbath was passed. Verse two says the first day of the week, that's Sunday again. So we have a full complete week, the very final week of Jesus's life here in Mark for us. And you know what I find interesting is that here Mark preserves for us. No other gospel gives you exactly each day like Mark does. You can actually chart a whole week in Mark. The other gospels don't always tell you when it's a new day. So what Mark is doing is really neat. He's giving you the final week. And at the beginning of his gospel, do you remember verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So here Mark has sort of this theme of, to him, the news of Jesus is as if it's a new beginning. It's a new Genesis. 
And then to show how Jesus creates this new beginning, he goes through the final week, just as Genesis went through the first week for us. So here, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we have the end of an old era and the beginning of a new era. The final week has come. The end of the old world, the dawning of the new world is here. So here's the creation week, and it's bloody, and it's horrible. But remember, the way of life first goes through death, and then it gets, right? You have to face Jerusalem. You have to face the cross or Mordor. All right, 11 verse 1. So they draw near to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, Jesus tells two disciples to go and find a colt. In verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Hence, we get the Palm Sunday. And they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna simply means save. And more urgently, it means save now. There is desperate need. Saving us would be nice. No, now. And so after this great entourage, he goes in verse 11, enters the temple, looks around, and they leave. So that's Sunday. Enters in to Hosanna and palm branches. Now, what's really neat about this as we look at the way of life is that Jesus comes in from the east, from the east into Jerusalem, And simultaneously, give or take a day or two, we don't know exactly when, but around this very moment, Pontius Pilate would be entering Jerusalem as well from the west side of the city. Pontius Pilate would ride in on a white horse with an entourage of soldiers behind him. Why is he coming to Jerusalem? He didn't live in Jerusalem. We think he does because whenever we read about him, he's there, right? But he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He didn't like Jerusalem. He lived on the seacoast where you would live if you were rich too. (laughs) And so he makes the trek to Jerusalem specifically for the Passover. Why? Because the Passover was was the Israelites wonderful festival in which they celebrated when they were slaves in Egypt, that God delivered them from that oppression and they were free. And remember we talked about the way in the very first week that the way was birthed in the wilderness and God took them on that way from Egypt to the promised land. And Deuteronomy literally talks about the way and says, you strayed from the way here. You walked on the way there. Walk, obey my commands that you may walk in my way. And that's the way Deuteronomy talks about it. That was the original way. And Passovers, when they look back at that and say, thank you, and they look forward, or in their case, at the present and look at Rome and say, that's the new Pharaoh, that's the new Egypt. God, bring Exodus 2.0. And so, not only do, are they religiously hyped and in, in political fervor for independence and to watch God's salvation once again, but Jerusalem doubles in population on Passover. Now, the numbers of how many live there is anywhere from 50,000 to 150,000. It really depends on who you read. But the point that all of everybody agrees upon is that Jerusalem at least doubles in size on Passover. So, do the math. Instant increase of more than doubling its size of Jewish religious 
feverish, feverish people that hate the Romans coming together at once. This is not good if you're in charge of a city. So Pontius Pilate makes sure that he's present for this moment. And he brings behind him an entourage of soldiers just to let everybody who's watching know, hey, if you even think about doing anything stupid, these guys, they're gleaming spears and sharpened swords and their armor gleaming in the sun and the golden eagle on their banners. Yeah, you're messing with Caesar himself. Now go back to the east where Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem and he's on not a white horse marching around with an army full of weapons and brute strength like Boromir would have done, but he's on a donkey and he's got peasants behind him. They don't have swords and spears. They have palm branches. They don't have threats. They have praise of Hosanna. Very, very different entry. And this is what Jesus is doing quite directly. He's saying, thank you very much, Caesar, for your way of the world. But my way is different. I don't come in to spill blood to gain control that way. It's not that kind of death that I come to bring. I come to bring life through my own death. So there's the intentional contrast. Jesus versus Pontius Pilate. Now let's move on. 11 verse 12. So it's Monday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. So there's leaves on it. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then in verse 15, he cleanses the temple as we some people have called it his temple tantrum. Overturns tables and drives out the sellers. And then in verse 20, we come back. They're leaving. Um, this is now Tuesday. As they passed by in the morning, so they're going back into Jerusalem. They've been staying outside of Jerusalem. So as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, there we have what we've talked about before. It's a classic Markin sandwich. Mark, you might remember before, we've seen these sandwiches where he will put one event that's half finished, put something else, and then finish the event. And that's what he does here. There's this fig tree. Jesus curses it. They go into the temple and do some things, and then they come back the next day, the fig tree's there again, and this time it's finished. It's cursed. The curse has been fulfilled. It's now withered. So what we have here is fig tree on both ends and the temple incident in the middle. What Mark wants us to do is read them together. Because if you read Matthew, you'll see that he doesn't do this. It's temple, then the fig tree. But here Mark spaces out. He wants you to focus in. Think temple and fig tree. Now, Mark told us that the tree wasn't in season. So that's why it didn't have figs. So his point here is don't look at Jesus as a big fat bully. That just feels like cursing things because he didn't get his way. And that's why he went and messed things up in the temple because he was in a bad mood that morning. That's not it at all. Mark points out that it was not in season for this purpose. Pay attention. This is more than just a nice piece of historical fact I'm throwing in. This is intentional setup here. So look, look closer. This is a symbol, in other words. Jesus is symbolizing something. This is what he's symbolizing the tree is the temple. 
The tree has no fruit. It has a lot of leaves. No fruit. Cursed are you. He goes to the temple. It has a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Does his thing, which is basically saying, cursed are you. Leaves, the fig tree is now withered. And that's to say the temple will soon, very shortly, be withered. AD 70, in your historical calendar, the Romans completely obliterate the temple. So... What are the leaves and the fruit? Well, Jesus goes in the temple and, oh yes, they're singing psalms, they're praying, they're making sacrifices. There's a lot of religious teaching and discussion going on. Man, the place is blossoming with leaves. There's a lot of stuff here. But upon further inspection, there's no fruit. Now, what kind of fruit was he looking for? We get two clues from two things that he says. He throws the people out, right? And then he says in verse 17, he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, Isaiah 56 verse 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Den of robbers? This, he's not saying, you guys are robbing people right here and right now. Den of robbers is a phrase that comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And in that chapter, this is what Jesus, or this is what Jeremiah says to the temple. He comes up to them, and he's just like Jesus. He comes to the temple, and he starts preaching. Hey, look around the nation, everybody. There's social injustice happening. You guys are murdering people. You're stealing land. You're committing adultery. The hungrier going hungrier, and so on. He lists all these injustices, right? And he says, that is why God is going to destroy this temple through the Babylonians. Because you guys are gathering together and making this place that should be a house of worship a den of robbers. So Jesus picks up on that incident and says, you have made this place a den of robbers. Now, if in fact he's thinking of Jeremiah, what is he saying? He's not saying, as I watch you guys sell animals and pigeons and exchange money here in the temple, you're just ripping everybody off and thus you're robbing them. He could be saying that and that could have been happening. But more likely, he's saying that the den of robbers is because the temple is the place where the robbers are hiding, not where they're doing the robbing. Does that make sense? They're doing the robbing elsewhere. They run to the temple to hide under the fig leaves and say, we're worshiping God, we're so one with him, we're religious, we're zealous, we've got it all together. And Jesus says, I see through this. This is a den of robbers. Everything you do out there does not match up with what's in here. And specifically, I've called this to be a house of prayer for all nations. And what are you doing? You're selling pigeons and selling cattle and exchanging money in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the temple had its different courts and in the middle is the priests. And then you have the Jewish men and the Jewish women. And then outside that is the Gentiles. And there's a little wall. And the archaeologists have found a sign from this wall that says, if you pass this, you die. There's a little wall that told the Gentiles no further. So they had their own little outside court and they were left there. Stay there. Now, what has been discovered is around AD 30 is that the high priest decided that the animals and coins that they were selling and exchanging would no longer be done in the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, but they would now be moved up into the court of the Gentiles, which was a huge slap in the face to Gentile worshipers. Basically, this is what we think of you. 
The place where Gentiles were to worship has become a marketplace. It's become a joke, a fair. And man, thousands of animals being sold, a lot of exchanging money and talking, and that is noisy. This is not a house of prayer for Gentiles, for the nations. And Jesus' accusation is, you guys have not made this a house for all people. It's as if you have a grudge against the Romans and you're taking it out on everybody. I'm here for life. The way of life does not exclude. It does not replace human beings with animals. It does not go rob people and then flock to the temple and say, we're good. We're covered in our fig leaves. That's what Adam and Eve did. Sin against God and hid under fig leaves. And that's what they're doing here in the temple. And so he's saying, I'm looking for fruit. Leaves are not proof that you're alive. The leaves can die much later. Lack of fruit is proof that you do not serve the purpose for your existence. And so this is the warning gives the temple. The temple is doomed because it no longer functions the way it was designed to function. So then where does the temple go? What now happens? Jesus answers this here in verse 22. He, on Tuesday now, he tells them, after Peter noticed the, the, the tree had withered, he tells them this, have faith in God. Implication. Not in the temple. The temple where you once found God, where you once received your forgiveness of sins. Don't have faith in that anymore. Have faith in God. You can go straight to him here now. I, I, I am becoming what the temple once was. And so then he talks about, you know, whoever says to this mountain, be taken down, thrown to the sea. Um, the mountain, the temple is said to be built on a mountain. So he's talking about, you know, cast into the sea. It will be done for him. Therefore, I, I tell you, who, whatever you ask in prayer, believe and receive, it will be yours. Whenever you say I'm praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Um, yeah, so there he's talking about forgiveness and faith. And that, those are things found in the temple too. And he's saying, no more. Just, just pray to me. You'll find your forgiveness. You'll find the faith. So the temple is now replaced for something that will bring life rather than thievery, robbery, and death. And then in 12 verse 18, let's move on to Tuesday. Tuesday's a long day. He deals with a lot of questions with the religious leaders. Basically, this is what they want to know. You came in and messed up the temple. Who do you think you are? So Jesus has to answer that. Well, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah technically can do that to the temple. It should be his. And then he finishes Tuesday in chapter 13, talking to his disciples about the future judgment on the temple and some other future things that a lot of people believe are not yet fulfilled. So it's a prophecy thing in chapter 13. Um, But chapter 12, verse 18, I will, so that we can keep things moving, I'll tell you what happens is the Sadducees come to Jesus in this string of challenges. Like, who are you? Who do you think, you know, are you good enough? And all these questions and accusations. And now the Sadducees come up to him. The Sadducees are very rich. They kind of ran things in the temple. They're collaborators with the Romans. And they did not believe in a resurrection. Why would they? 
Our life is great. We don't need things to be turned upside down later on. We want things to stay the same. Status quo, that's their way. And so they come up to Jesus and they mocking the resurrection, much like um, Richard Dawkins would do towards religion. If you've ever heard his stuff, he's very sarcastic and makes you disbelieve it by making it sound silly, not by reason, but by silliness. That's his method. And the, the Sadducees come to Jesus the same way. Listen to how silly the resurrection is. So there's this man and this woman, okay? They're married. The man dies doesn't have a son so the brother of the man now marries the woman to get a son but he doesn't do it and he dies and then the other brother marries her and seven times okay they all die the woman is now a widow still and she has no child and they ask in the resurrection which of those seven brothers does the woman belong to solve that and jesus i don't know what he does but he probably rolls his eyes he does something like oh gosh And he basically says, you don't know the power of God, nor do you understand the scriptures. For, he says, in the resurrection, when they raise from the dead, verse 25, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then he tells them, didn't you read in the book of Moses that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. So... What is he saying? They will neither be given in marriage, nor will they marry, but they'll be like angels. Clear something up here. Jesus nowhere says there is no marriage in the resurrection. He doesn't say that. Look closer at what he's saying. He's saying they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, there are no new marriages in the resurrection. Now, another thing that he's saying is they will be like the angels. Some people would say that being like the, and you can, of course, reject all this if you want. That's fine. This is just, this is just what I thought in my study. So, but being like the angels, a lot of people say means, well, that's because we'll all be genderless. So there's no, you can't really do marriage there. Um, I think what he means by you'll be like the angels is you'll be immortal like the angels. So now putting this together, what is happening? The Sadducees are coming to him with a ridiculous situation that would never even happen anyways. And what they're doing is they're talking about leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Not regular marriage. Leveret. What leveret marriage is, and this was in the Mosaic Law, was if, you know, a man and woman didn't have an heir to pass the possessions and name down to, then the woman... If the man died, the woman would marry his brother so that the same name could be passed on to her son. The son would be counted as if it was the dead man's son. So leveret marriage was a system designed in order to let your name and possessions live on through the family line. So it was a nice way of making sure your name wasn't erased from Israel forever. Now, that's leveret marriage. Jesus is saying, in the resurrection, people are angels. They don't die. So why would you need leveret marriage in the resurrection? You wouldn't. And if people aren't dying, then why do you need to give to new people and new marriages? You don't have to remarry people in the resurrection. So you guys don't get it. You think that the resurrection is merely a continuation of your present life. But that's where you misunderstand the presence of God, who's a God who can create order and life out of chaos and death. That God will bring a new order, a new creation that we will inherit. You see, the Sadducees, that's all they want. To them, they did believe in resurrection. 
But resurrection to them was simply the eternal preservation of your family name through children. I live forever through my children. Jesus is saying the resurrection is far greater than that. And then he tells them at the end, you know, I'm the God of living, not of the dead. This is, I think, his point. It's theology and your doctrine isn't designed for your death. It's designed for your life. Right? Now, now, no doubt, some of our theology and doctrine gives comfort for death. But we don't study scripture. We don't believe the things we believe so that we can understand death. Jesus is about life. And that's the way of life he's bringing them onto is follow me and teach these teachings and these doctrines and this theology because they're meant to help your life, livelihood, today, right now, how you interact with neighbor and with God. And in stressful situations, that is what your doctrine is for. It's not to sit back and say, well, hmm, I'm really glad that in that day I will be standing on that side of the fence. That is comforting, no doubt. But if that's all your doctrine does, you are as dead as the temple. And the Sadducees. So, this is the way of life. A living doctrine that looks not and speculates, well, will we be married in the resurrection or not? No, it's, I am the God of the living. Let's deal with the living right now. We'll get there and we'll decide what that looks like then. So, I sounded harsh because I'm sure he was harsh with the Sadducees. So we're just role-playing here. You can relax. Chapter 14 is Wednesday. This is where the plot thickens. It gets darker, darker, darker. Just like our picture, Jesus is moving into the darkness. The religious leaders are plotting that they need to kill him. Oh, here's another sandwich. We need to kill him. Cliffhanger. Jesus is now in a house, and a woman comes and breaks open a very costly box of ointment and anoints him. And we're told that this would have taken a year's worth of wages. This very costly act of worship here. And then he says, wherever the gospel goes, what she has done will be spoken on behalf of her. So very costly worship. And then we go back. The sandwich is concluded here in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who's one of the 12, went to the chief priest and said, you need help? So you see how that works? Cliffhanger. We're going to kill him. Jesus is anointed by this woman. Judas steps in. I'm your man. So there's a sandwich. The plot thickens. That's Wednesday. We come to Thursday. And we now come to the Last Supper in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So this is Jesus' last supper in the old creation, but not his last supper ever. The next one I do with you guys will be in the new creation. We'll all be resurrected. So that's the good news he gives there. It's only the temporarily last supper. Now, here, of course, we're talking about Passover, right? So this would have been the Passover meal. Um, and, you know, they're eating it to remember the whole thing, the whole, how they were delivered from Egypt. And you might remember that the climax came on the final night that they're in Egypt. 
And the whole meal was called Passover because that's what the night was called. Because the angel of death that Moses said was going to come and strike all of the firstborn of the Egyptians um, was coming. He's going to pass over. But if the Israelites would put a lamb's blood on the doorpost and eat the lamb, the angel of death wouldn't kill their sons, but he would pass over and go on. So in the Passover story, the lamb became a symbol of life. And notice there's no mention of a lamb at this Passover because the lamb on the table is now the lamb at the table. The one speaking to them, Jesus. And so here he is again, the way of life here. I'm going to give my life so that you can have life. This is the way of life. I am going to give it to you. So that is um, the Passover. And this is what they're celebrating. And it's just really fitting, isn't it? Because if you ask one of the Israelites that were fleeing Egypt on that after that night, and Pharaoh said, get out of here. What would they have told you? Hey, hey, why are you guys so happy? What's going on? Where are you going? He would have said something like this. Well, because the lamb was killed in our place, we are now free. The lamb died for me, and we are going to the promised land, our new life up ahead. And they're, they're on the way, in other words, is what they'd be explaining. And this is what Jesus has been doing through the whole gospel. It's a mirror picture of the Exodus event. Freeing people, dying for people, and giving the promised land to those who walk on the way with him. So that is Thursday. The Lamb, Jesus, is life. And then you got the Garden of Gethsemane, a picture. Um, I think Frodo and Boromir is a great drama about what Jesus might have been experiencing in the Garden um, and then let's fly forward. I'm going to touch on 15 just a little bit. All right. 15 verse 39. So Jesus has been crucified. And at the end of the matter, this is what happens. 1539. When the centurion, that's a Roman soldier. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the son of God. And that is no doubt Mark's climax to the crucifixion episode. That a Roman centurion recognizes that he, even in the most vulnerable, humble, life-giving sort of way, that is against any way man can imagine, even in that moment, the centurion recognizes there's something divine about this gross vulnerable situation only a god would do that what a turn huh and peter in the meantime had been denying him the centurion sees why does the centurion get it and judas and peter and the other 10 don't why the centurion who had seen nothing about jesus until that moment I would suggest to you it's because that this is the way the world was meant to recognize who Jesus is. Jesus was meant to be recognized not in our rhetoric or our logic or our arguing atheists or having ironclad apologetics. That's not the way Jesus was meant to be seen. He wasn't meant to be seen by cornering people on a bus and stuffing their coats with tracks and pressuring them into the sinner's prayer. 
Although that has its purpose. I just made it sound silly on purpose. (laughs) Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the way Jesus was meant to be seen. It's this. It's on the cross. When he's bleeding and dying and giving of his life, that's when Jesus was meant to be seen. And this is what I'm saying. Is it's not our witnessing in a conversation or our logic in a debate about which religion's the best. It's when we die for people. That's when Jesus is seen. It's when I'm selfless. It's when I take risks. It's when I stop living to build my kingdom and to survive in it and to control people. It's when I start doing what Jesus said last week. I start receiving those that can't help me. I start giving up my throne and serving the people I'm putting on the throne. It's when I start carrying my cross. That is when Jesus is seen. And that I believe the church is severely lacking in today. I believe that we are refusing the cross part of the way. We walk in the freedom and we want the future life and the, whatever life we're experiencing now, but we just don't want the cross. And, and our theology is correct when we say that Jesus died on the cross for us, but it's wrong when we stop there and say he only died on the cross for us and never called us to go with him to the cross. Because he did. That's what all last week was the way of death. He kept telling the disciples, you're taking up the cross It's about following me to Jerusalem and through Jerusalem and onto the cross because resurrection lies on the other side and not before it. That's how you inherit it. You're following my path. We are confronting the death of the world. We're confronting the people that are becoming a den of robbers and ripping other people off. We're confronting that and we're taking our life to it and we're willing to lay ourselves down for people. Whether by blood or whether just by sheerly giving up your will and your rights. Either way, that's when people say, truly, their God is the true Son of God. And so here's my question. How far are we willing to follow Jesus? How far? Monday? We sing Hosanna. That's a good, that's good. We got to Jerusalem. To when he starts cleaning house and starts exposing where we're robbing people and we're all leaves and no fruit. Okay, I can endure that. What about Wednesday when people start to question or accuse or put you in the pressure? What about Thursday? What about Wednesday when, when people are betraying you and, and plotting your ruin and coming against you unfairly, unjustly? What about Thursday? I look here and I I see a room, uh, most of you I know pretty well, and I think that here, most of us are willing to follow Jesus all the way to Thursday, all the way to the Last Supper, because we do. Every single week, I see the majority of us grabbing communion and saying, thank you, Jesus. We follow him to Thursday. We follow him to the Last Supper. We sit at that table with him and we say, thank you for giving your life for us. Simon is our positive example of how far we're to follow Jesus. Simon is in 1521. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He must have been, they must have been well known in the church because he's quoting, you know, who he's connected to, um, to carry his cross. 
Simon carries the cross all the way to the end. Simon, not Peter, not Judas, not the ten. Simon is our example of what it means. The way of life. It goes through death. And Simon went all the way. So, have we gone all the way? Or are we still at Thursday? Are we still at the Lord's Supper? Do we take communion? Or have we gotten to the place where we actually give communion? We all take it. Most of us, I see, we take communion. But do we give communion? What do I mean by that? Jesus was the one giving the Last Supper to the disciples. And as he gave it to them, what was he saying? This is my body and my blood. This is my life. I'm giving it to you. And have we gotten to the place where we can now invite people to the table and say, I'm giving this for you. I know I, know I can't die. We can't save people. But we can lay down our lives. We can lay down our rights, our power, our control. We can serve. And we can say, I'm giving you what Jesus gave me. Sacrifice, surrender, selflessness. Here's my life. That's when centurions say, he is the son of God. That is when we move from Thursday to Friday. That's when we follow Jesus like Simon of Cyrene all the way to Calvary. And that is when we fulfill what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. What do I mean? We'll finish right here. The greatest commandment. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 28. It's put to this test. You know, the lawyer comes up and says, what's the greatest commandment? Of all 613 that we keep, which is the greatest? And that was a, that was a pretty legitimate debate in the day. You know, the, the ongoing discussion amongst the Jews. And you kind of knew who fell where in their theology by how they answered that question. So, Jesus, let's see where you stand. What's the greatest? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus hears... This answer, um, well, when Jesus gives this answer, the, the scribe says, you have spoken well. And so Jesus now tells the scribe, he sees that the scribe gets it. The scribe sees it. So he tells the scribe this in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the resurrection. You are not far from the way of life. You're on the right path, buddy. Why? He got it. I'm not just someone that takes communion. I give. I give communion. I choose to embody the blood and the wine. Bread and the wine. 
Let us, let us live like the bread and the wine for people. We will be torn for people. We will be spilled for people so that they can say, this man was the son of God. That's how you fulfill loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how you join Jesus on the way of life. So yes, the way of freedom is great. Yes, the way of death is hard. But on the other side, we know because of Easter, and we'll talk about that next week, but on the other side, life is promised. This is indeed the way of life. And Jesus calls all who have the courage, who have the true power, not to oppress people, but to lay down themselves for people. That true power is what gets us. That's what causes us to follow Jesus on the way. That's where he's inviting us. That's where I'm inviting you. So as we take communion tonight, and Richard comes up, let's challenge ourselves that we take this to be like Simon of Cyrene, we take it to walk to Calvary with Jesus, carrying the cross alongside. We're going to be, we are not just going to eat bread and wine. We're going to be bread and wine. Amen.